This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you here today. And on this programme, as you may recall, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive. We read it, we talk about it, then we ask her or him to read one of their own poems that was published in the magazine. Now, my guest today is Kevin Young. Kevin Young, the recipient of such honours as a Stegner Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, an award-winning poet, Kevin Young. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks. Now, the poem you have chosen to read is a poem called A Sympathy, A Welcome. It's by John Berryman. John Berryman, possibly a poet that... uh, not so many people read these days. Is that possible? Uh, well, they had a centenary a year or two ago, and I think that did spawn um, people to sort of re-examine him. And I feel like he has a kind of cult status or a growing fan base. I don't know. I think if you're looking for a poet who is writing wildly and and, and sort of coming to his voice in a way late, I mean, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but certainly changing his style uh, in the midstream, um, I think he's your your man. I think the centenary did indeed, um, you know, introduce readers who might not have been so familiar with him to the extraordinary work uh, of John Berryman and perhaps reminded those of us uh, who, you know, for various reasons, disabled or whatever, have just got out of the way of reading him. He's really quite extraordinary, isn't he? I think so. I mean, I I think that he has this interesting range, even within his most famous poem, The Dream Songs, a long poem. Um, And the first sort of manic, uh, just madcap, you know, uh, almost vaudevillian 77 dream songs, I think, is is really a a masterpiece. Um, And then I think in the later dream songs that he wrote, they were quite wonderful. But I even like some of the earlier poems, which uh, of which A Sympathy, A Welcome is one. Um, And then, you know... um, he had this book after that uh, that I think is really interesting. And, of course, he also has this long poem, uh, Homage to Mistress Bradstreet, about Anne Bradstreet, mm-hmm. the first poet published on American soil. Yes. Um, 
uh, who's, a, I think, a fascinating quote herself. Yes. And to pick her, I think, was a really interesting choice uh, in the 50s when he did um, to champion this female ancestor. Um, and he really writes in her voice. And, and he he says in one uh, sort of interview I read that he was really interested in the modulating of voices. It starts in Berryman's own voice and then modulates into her voice and comes back out again. And of course, that's what the dream songs do almost within the lines, you know, line to line, but also within the lines, you have these many different voices, sometimes referred to as he or I or you. Um, he is a ventriloquist, isn't he? Yeah. Like, as all poets are to a greater or lesser extent, perhaps. You know, there's an aspect of him that I just wonder how you would respond to this. I mean, I, I, one of the voices that he uses, one of the lingos that he uses is a kind of black patois. Yeah. Now, how, how, how I mean, it's, one <laughs> wonders if he would, you know, in this particular era, do you think that would still be on, as it were? <laughs> I mean, because, I think it was late to do it anyway. I mean, he's writing yeah. in kind of a blackface, right? Yes. Um, I, I think it's slightly problematic, oh, one yeah. would say. Oh, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's what's interesting to me about him. He's doing this tightrope. But he's trying to, you know, he says in the little precy to dream songs that, you know, it's about Henry or Huffy Henry, um, who's speaking, you know, to the audience, a middle-aged American man, I think he says. Yes. And he might even specify that he's white, um, sometimes in blackface, he says. So Henry is sometimes donning this out-of-date mask. I mean, he's writing in them over a span of time, late 50s, I think, to the mid to late 60s. And, you know, in that time, we're seeing these transformation in terms of civil rights. And so I think in a weird way, it's a kind of perverse reaction to that. Um, and and I, I think in language, the mistake I have critiqued him about in print and talked about uh, a lot is that he seems to think that he's somehow getting actual black vernacular language, which he's not. He's doing this, you know, mimicked dialect that was really a white invention of stage uh, and and screen and you had people like Hattie McDaniel's, who's a wonderful actor, um, have to learn quote quote <laughs> black dialect right. um, in order to play a maid, you know, and right. and so there was these absurdities of it, um, and I, I guess to me he, the ways it doesn't work are just as interesting the ways it does or the way it shows this white mask that is painting itself black. I mean, I think that gap and that uh, tension is really. Interesting, if if troubling, you know. But Henry is super troubled, and and so is the century. So this is Henry talking rather than John Berryman, I suppose, to put it very crudely. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it's also he has another character who addresses Henry as Mister Bones. Yes, uh, and so this interlocutor, uh, or interlocutor, however you want to say it, um, is the person quizzing Henry and asking him these things of him. Often he's uh, uh, Berryman refers to him as. Henry's friend, who is no friend you want. You know, he's he's an underminer, and and and, but he's sort of this inner voice, right? And uh, I I think what that freed Berryman from is his sort of Audenesque seriousness and 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 the grandeur, <laughs> the grandeur of the earlier poems. Yeah, perhaps. yeah, it, it let him be slapsticky, um, and as inappropriate as he, you know, uh, from all accounts, sometimes was. Um, but I, I think that he was also – he was trying to create this antihero. 
Something that he said himself, or it's actually from the songs that he he refers to the method of the songs, might be applicable to this poem. He wrote, these songs are not meant to be understood, you understand. <laughs> they are only meant to terrify and comfort. And that perhaps is part of the ambition of this poem also. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the title tells you something about it, that it, it's sort of a sympathy um, and it's addressed to his son, Paul, upon his birth and then also a welcome. You know, it's sort of this tension and it's beautiful and haunting. And for a long time, I thought about using it as an epigraph for one of my books uh, that deals with the birth of my son, who also his given name happens to be Paul, um, which was my father's name. So I was also thinking about just, you know, Paul. But that complicated feeling that one might experience upon birth, which is, oh, my God, what a beautiful, gorgeous miracle and what a responsibility. I mean, I feel he's wrestling with that. I'm really looking forward to hearing you read this, partly because the first line is quite challenging, actually. <laughs> yeah, why did I pick this one? It, it seems uh, I could have gone with it. Uh, why don't you have a go in there and see, <laughs> see how you get on? A sympathy, a welcome. Feel for your bad fall, how could I fail, poor Paul, who had it so good? I can offer you only this world like a knife. Yet, you'll get to know your mother, and humorless as you do look, you will laugh, and all the others will not be fierce to you, and loverhood will swing your soul like a broken bell, deep in a forsaken wood, poor Paul whose wild, bad father loves you well. What a huge amount is packed into that. It's really like the arc of a lifetime, isn't it? Yes. Two poor Pauls uh, among, among them. And I, I realize I'm sitting with a, with a Paul. I think that, that first line is so, you know, as you were saying, it's sort of inverted and twisted. I even... You can almost have to rearrange it to understand it. But at the same time, he's saying, I feel for you. You know, how could I feel but not help but to feel for your journey here? Yeah. How could I fail to feel for your bad fall <laughs> yeah. would be a more conventional. Right. But still a strange way to say. A more conventional uh, syntax. Of course, he Berryman was a great Shakespearean, wasn't he? Of course, he? yes. So this is right. probably, that's probably partly what's driving this. Yes, I think so. I think it's also who had it so good. I mean, there's that that kind of, you know, um, vernacular that he is later going to explode and explore there. There is. And also, as Shakespeare might well have done, he there's a tension there again between the good and bad, the bad fall, mm-hmm. who had it so good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can offer you only this world like a knife. I mean, <laughs> that's that's sort of a... Is he handing him the, the blade part or the, the handle part? You know, you, you feel almost both of those. You know, it's, a, it's, it's almost as if the predicament of the child is being on a knife edge. I mm-hmm. mean, there are other knives. There's, I mean, we talk, speaking of Shakespeare, it's almost as if the dagger, the, the <laughs> dagger is being offered. Is this a dagger that I, I see before me? Um, so I can offer you this world in the way that I might offer you a knife or... I can offer you only this world, which is itself like a knife. Of course, of course. And, you know, you, you think of the sort of surgical 
knife as well, uh, not just the dagger. And Yet, you'll get to know your mother. You know, that there's those little internal rhymes throughout the poem that I think are really smart and I think are something that I love in his work because there's the undertow in it to me. The music is, is sort of pleasant where there's this real, like, uh, undertow and... That. Well, there is. And with the, that line, yet you'll get to know your mother is also kind of double edged, as it were, <laughs> because, I mean, you have actually come into the world through the mother, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I'm not going to mention that right now, because right. when you get to know, it's almost as if he's the, the burden of it is when you get to know your mother, actually, you may not be completely persuaded, be completely persuaded by her. Right. Well, it's almost that. As if he didn't know her before. Yes. I think it's almost as if the sympathy part is double-edged too. You know, he he feels sorry for him, but he's also humorless. As you do look, you will laugh. You know, he's he's almost telling himself this child who has come to him humorless and, you know, they kind of just cry for a while um, is going to laugh. And all the others, it's italicized, and all the others will not be fierce to you. And I love that phrase that he's coined, loverhood. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Will beautiful. swing your soul like a broken bell, not a ringing one, deep in a forsaken wood. I mean, that's pretty, pretty bleak sounding or not sounding, the silence of it. So, and then he comes back to the wild, bad father. We had bad in the first line. We had mm-hmm. bad in the, mm-hmm. in, the, in the final line. It's... You know, it's somewhat reminiscent to me of uh, that description of uh, Lord Byron as being mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And I think, <laughs> as you were suggesting earlier on, that actually, alas, was a feature of for John Berryman. He sure. was he was a bit of a wild man, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's he's claiming it that he is, but there's a little bit of a humble brag, as they would say. You know, almost. You know, I think of an African American vernacular: "Bad means." You know, Bad meaning bad, not bad meaning good, or the other way around, you know. Um, Bad usually means the opposite. His badness seems not just infantile, but also sort of exciting to him. Um, And it's part of his welcome. Like, you too are wild, you know. uh, You too are an infant joining us in this moment. But the father, you know, who has this forsaken wood interests me. Yes. Well, I mean, the wood is, a, of course, is a, as a metaphor for life. We have it in Dante. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and again, Berryman is a hugely erudite yes. poet, though he does it quite casually. Yeah, yeah. He wears the learning lightly, as they say, the broken bell, la cloche fêlée, the cracked bell mm-hmm. that we get in French mm-hmm. literature. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so all of that is going on in there. It's a poem I realized that was published uh, in The New Yorker on August. 16, 1958, 60 years ago almost. And here we are. It's still exercising us. It's still still keeping us thinking, keeping us on our toes. I love that. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
In the January 26, 2015 issue of the magazine, we published your poem, Oblivion, uh, which you're about to read for us now. Can you remember what was going on in your head as you were writing this? It's very much a poem of Louisiana where uh, my family's from, you know, still has land and has lived in these patches of land for almost 200 years. So I think it's called Oblivion, but a little like the sympathy and the welcome, it's almost the opposite. It's about sort of forever or some version of that. And I was thinking about these cows in the fields there. In the poem, I mean, I think addresses this, the way they have these many stomachs and they're sort of always chewing cud. And there's something that they know that the poem is trying to understand. Well, there's a word actually that we use um, off our mulling things over, off our musing over things, um, which we also use off the gastrointestinal <laughs> system of the cow, and that's the word ruminate. Yes. And it's a word that you uh, rather, rather cleverly <laughs> avoid in the poem, but it's kind of, it's lurking there, isn't it? <laughs> it is, you're right. Why don't we uh, listen to it and then we can talk about it further. Kevin Young's great poem, Oblivion. Oblivion. In the field, the cows consider oblivion, mulling it over. They and their many stomachs know nothing stays lost forever, that grass, almost cruel, resurrects again, again. They know even drought will end, though the family they belong to forgets. Cows know the slow, closing eye of the pond will once more open, and the sky. Rain will find their bowed backs, the burnt earth's offering. Cows keep no cry, only a slave's low moan. This slight rise they must climb. Beautiful. In that line about uh, cows keep no cry, only a slave's low moan, it's all but unbearable, really. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's of the earth for me, you know. It's so in the soil, the moan and the the connection in a weird way. You know, a moo is not high-pitched, as you know, surely. Uh, it's this low kind of, like, just deep. Uh, it's almost ruminating. It's rumbling. And um, I was really thinking of that and its connection to song and to the spirituals and sort of the wordlessness of the spirituals, uh, which I think is very primal, which isn't to say it isn't sophisticated. It, it is. I didn't want to end with that, though. I wanted really to see that like kind of slight rise, that the way they, they, they go into the distance, you know? Yes. I mean, it's um, it ends with something. Am I right in thinking something of a, an upbeat? Is it vaguely upbeat, would you say? <laughs> vaguely, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a slight rise. I mean, it, it requires effort yeah. for them to climb that rise. Yeah. It's not exactly, you know, they're not exactly riding off into the sunset. <laughs> it, there's still effort and there's still, there is still something to be endured by sure. them, right? Well, and it follows these O's, uh, the O sounds, which I think of as kind of O, moan, low moan, and then those I sounds seem to me also kind of hopeful somehow. Well, I was struck when you read it there, as you read it, of the cows know the slow and then the end of the line there on jambant on closing. And then we have it again in closing eye of the pond. Mm -hmm. And it slows the line down. It almost, it almost 
closes it down. Mm-hmm. You're conscious of that, of course, as you're writing that line. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your practice. How long would it have taken for you to write a poem like this, Would you, if you can God. remember? That's a great question. How long did I consider oblivion when I was <laughs> no, how rolling long, it over? Yeah, how long would it, well, physically, how many, did yeah. you spend days on this, hours, weeks, months? I mean, I tend to write uh, in bursts and then go back. Um, this poem, it seems to me, came fairly whole, but that doesn't always happen. Many times it's many months, and certainly the shortest time would be months, I would think. Um, but I actually don't recall this one so well. Um I know it was it was just brought on by place, though. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Was it a particular image, perhaps, that floated up to you? Yeah, I think it was that sound at the end, and then the the image of them, um, and I should say sounds, you know. But the way that they keep no cry, I, I wanted to think about them. It's not that they don't cry; it's that they don't have one to cry. I don't know. There's something about that. It's not in their repertoire? Is that, is that what it <laughs> I, is? I think that's partially what I meant, but mm-hmm. I also meant like they certainly don't live in that. You know, they live in this other sound. I was really, you know, I, I was writing a lot of poems about sort of animals and, and their sounds and their nature, um, partially because of Louisiana. And there's sort of, I think, poems floating around it, whether it's the loss of my dad or the birth of my son that ended up in in, uh, a book called Book of Hours Mm -hmm. that this poem kind of circles around. I guess I I was really also interested in oblivion as just a word. It's such a particular word to me. It doesn't mean – it means nothing, I suppose, but it means more than that. If you obliviate something or someone, it's eliminated, you know, but it existed. And I feel like they're – they're mulling over this kind of nothingness, but also it's not unpleasant. There's something uh, spiritual about that. It's the nothingness of of Eastern thought, maybe, or, or of, of uh, a kind of emptiness that is clearing the mind. Yeah, yeah. Rather than uh, negative, or or and we think of nothing as so horrific, and there's other cultures that don't that think of it as a kind of waiting as a pleasantness. And I think there's a kind of non-Western quality that I was trying to capture somewhere. But there's resurrection in the poem, um, all these things that think about forever in different ways um, that are very much part of that tradition that the slave's low moan is, is engaged in. It's a fabulous poem, Kevin Young. Thank you so much for reading it for us today. A Sympathy, a Welcome by John Berryman, as well as Kevin Young's poem, Oblivion, may be found on NewYorker.com. And the latest book of poems by John Berryman, uh, published posthumously, of course, is Collected Poems, 1937-1971. Kevin Young's most recent collection is Blue Laws, Selected and Uncollected Poems, 1995-2015. to Kevin Young, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Paul. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records.
The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Elizabeth Jemison. A Sympathy, a Welcome by John Berryman appears in Collected Poems, 1937 to 1971, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud. The poem is read here with the permission of the publisher. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs>